Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is head of the English department and TOK coordinator at Stonehill International School, Bangalore. We discuss the best book she's ever taught, read or learnt in school, a text or unit that Jenny's been keen to introduce to the classroom but isn't quite ready to do so yet, an introduction to her career to date, the best and worst things about living in Bangalore, her opinion on how to best give feedback on formative or summative assessment, how to enhance students' TOK experience through English teaching, the most challenging part of being a head of department, in her opinion, the best advice she's ever been given or come across in terms of teaching, and finally, resources that she would recommend for teachers seeking to improve. Thanks a lot to Jennifer for agreeing to chat at a time when India continues to toil with pandemic-based problems. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you usually get them and or give me a follow on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK if you'd like to be kept abreast of this kind of education chat. Uh, okay, Jenny, what's um, the best book you've ever taught, read or learnt whilst you're at school and why? Okay, um, I'm not sure if I could ever say there's a best. Um, you know, people sometimes ask me, what's your favourite novel? And I, I can't just choose one. There are too many out there. Um, so I kind of have a couple of answers, I think, really. that um, One is The Reader by Bernard Schlink. Um, I... I've used this novel um, off and on for a few years now as a text in translation. Um, it's such an unusual novel. It carries, carries some controversy with it. But what I really like about it is that it really encourages students to um, ideally be less judgmental. Um, I don't want to you know, give away too much about the plot if people don't know the novel, but um, you know, it does focus on the, the story of um, a young man and a woman post-World War II in Germany um, and the impact that the war has had on the next generation. Um, so it's a novel that kind of explores generation gaps. It explores the relationships that there are between um, generations. It explores collective guilt. Um, and it has just some very interesting themes. And I think in particular, one character who um, we discover uh, has been involved as a Nazi in the war, um, but is presented to us uh, in a way that we, you know, we understand her. She's not, she's not just a number, she's an individual. And I think it just encourages students to kind of try and understand and be less judgmental, especially in this kind of, in this day and age as well, where there's this whole cancel culture going on. And, you know, people don't seem to be able to, make a mistake <laughs> and we're yeah. all human beings and you know sometimes small mistakes are made big mistakes are made and I think it's just a novel that kind of encourages understanding and tolerance which in this day and age we need a lot of I think yeah that's a um that's a great that's that's a really really nice kind of example of a book I've, I've, I think I've heard of the adaptation but I've never actually read the book um I didn't know that's what it was about but that's I agree with your point there about the, the cancel culture thing in terms of everything. It feels like everything's binary now. You're yeah. either, you know, Tory or Labour wholeheartedly. You're either, you know, 
Republican or Democrat and there's no shades of grey. Um, so that's quite, oh, okay. Uh, all, all these books or anything we kind of mention, I will kind of put a link in the thing um, in, the, in the description as well as ordering it myself on Amazon. So yeah, okay, thank you for that one. Um, what's a textile unit um, that you've always been tempted or keen to introduce in the classroom? but you've not quite got around to it yet, either due to confidence or timing or practicality. Um, so what would that unit be? And, and why have you uh, not managed to kind of put put it down in uh, into practice yet? I actually don't think there is one. Um, mm. I feel, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm somebody that feels that if there's something I want to explore with the students, um, if there are challenges in that text, I'm happy to kind of embrace those, those challenges with the students at the same time. Mm. And I'm very open about texts that I like or texts that I find challenging. Um, you know, recently, I, I over the summer, I gave um, some texts, just a reading list really to students, you know, to encourage them to read over the summer um, and had a student to choose Catcher in the Rye and mm. um, spoke to him the other day and he said that he had been immensely disappointed that you know he he'd heard it was this great classic and thought it was highly overrated and I said yeah I agree <laughs> with you <laughs> I think it is you know and we can't possibly like every book um, there definitely have been times when things have been challenging though I think being white and British and teaching and working in India I'm very conscious of, you know, the the implications that might come with that when it comes to my potential ignorance or lack of understanding, um, you know, when it comes to colonial times. And so there have been a couple of times when I've looked at texts with students and I've been quite nervous about it, but I've still mm. gone ahead and I've done it, um, particularly Indian texts. So I do look at White Tiger by Aravind, um, Adiga and it you know it, it explores the caste system it explores um, you know some of that kind of post-colonial kind of heritage of India and it does present some challenging conversations but I, I, I hope um, that none of my students find that it's difficult to have those conversations with somebody who is white and British um, you know, a lot of my students are Indian and obviously that's there. And, you know, sometimes they're, you know, we are even able to joke about it. You know, I've, I've commented on a student's, you know, sarcasm and how much I appreciated it and um, got the response. You know, I think we got that from you British or something, which was kind of funny. <laughs> and, you know, luckily we're able to kind of have that sort of banter. Um, the other thing I do kind of have an, a personal aversion to um, which is usually more that it's the other English teachers that I have a, a conflict with here, is yeah. I'm really not a fan of graphic novels. I just mm. dislike graphic novels. I can't engage with them in the same way um, as I can with a, a regular novel. Um, and I know that it's something that a lot of English teachers love. I've got um, teachers in my department who really enjoy teaching graphic novels and I more than encourage it. But you know, I think that for me personally, I've never taught a graphic novel and I really think I need to set myself that challenge at some point. I always <laughs> purposely avoid it. Let somebody else do that. Um, I can appreciate it. You know, I've looked at Persepolis, I've looked at Mouse, uh, you know, but I just, I find them quite, I think I've, I'm very passionate about what I do. And I think it's probably definitely um, influences the types of texts 
that I choose to share with the students because I want to be authentic in the classroom and I don't want to be passionate about something and try and encourage them to read it if I know that deep down I'm really not a fan of that myself. Um, I don't want to um, put myself through that. Um, and so that's one of the reasons, I guess, why I've avoided it. But maybe I need to kind of put myself out of my comfort zone at some point and go for that graphic novel. <laughs> I think um, the graphic novel thing's interesting, particularly with IB. I wonder whether it was born out of the need to do new textualities in the old iteration of the course and everyone kind of flocked towards Persepolis, which is which is really good, um, and maybe Mouse or the, one of those other things. And also, I feel like if, if you do IGCSE and then you do IB, you're kind of under the yoke of IGCSE set texts. And then it's a much easier kind of, it, it almost feels like you're liberated when you get to IB that you can do these texts and you can kind of win the students back by doing a, a graphic novel. But I, it is interesting how they've, they are almost like the the darling of uh, the IB literature courses. Sometimes I feel like I, I I've taught Persepolis. I quite like the old graphic novel, but yeah, I wouldn't. If, if my head of department said we're not doing them anymore, I don't think I'd be <laughs> over, overly disappointed. Yeah. But that that's quite a good thing to hear that you like. Uh, you're going to challenge yourself to take it on. Um, you mentioned a moment ago that you you're, you're teaching in India at the moment. Um, can you just give us like a summary of your career to date and how, how you managed to find yourself teaching in India? Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't plan on becoming a teacher um, from a very early age. I wanted to be an actress and I went to drama school and I did work as an actress for a while, but it's notoriously a very challenging job. Um, you're, you know, you're waitressing as much as you're going to auditions at times. Um, and it was through a theatre and education company that I started my sort of journey into teaching. I, I got a job with a theatre and education company in Italy and I was touring in Italy um, and we were using drama and theatre as a, as a vehicle for learning English for mm. students in Italy. And I just loved it. I just, I was so happy. I enjoyed the travel aspect of it. Um, I really enjoyed working with young people. Um, and it kind of went from there, really. I, I got back to the UK and sort of thought, you know, had a moment of reflecting on what I wanted to do with my life and, and made that decision to um, go back to university. Um, initially, I was going to do a PGCE, um, but then I ended up doing the graduate teacher program, which I don't think exists nowadays. Um, in the early noughties, you could um, kind of learn on the job. So I did the graduate teacher program um, at a, a girls' grammar school in Kent, um, and and then kind of went from there, but always had this intention of going and working internationally. I, I loved traveling. By that point, I'd already met my husband who was, um, I'd met him in Italy, even though he was British. Um, and we both liked that idea of combining teaching and, and traveling. Um, and so I did work in the UK for a while um, as an English and drama teacher. And then the journey has taken me to um, China in 2009 was the first international school I went to, spent four years um, just outside Guangzhou, um, taught in the Philippines, Germany, went back to the UK briefly, and I've now been in India for four years. Um, and it's great. I think that it just provides, you know, for on a personal level, I'm able to travel with my family, explore the world under normal circumstances, obviously not in a COVID <laughs> world. Um, and... 
I find teaching internationally just teaches me as much, you know, just it's an eye-opening experience. It's an absolutely rewarding experience to to meet these people, meet people from all around the world and and teach in this way. It's it's uh yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. It's it's been fantastic. Yeah. Mm. What, what so what are the in your current kind of posting uh, are you in Bangalore at the moment, Jenny? Yeah. 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 What What are the sort of positives and, and, and negatives of living uh, there? If suppose it's not really a very fair reflection of uh, any place under the, the COVID circumstances, but um, how, how does India or Bangalore more specifically compare to the previous places you've lived? I think that um, there's, there's a lot about Bangalore that's great. Um, in comparison to a lot of India, it's got a great climate because it's actually on a plateau. So it's quite high above sea level. Um, so you don't get the same sweltering temperatures that you get in other parts of India. Um, it's, you know, enabled us to explore, you know, pre-COVID. Um, yeah, again, it's, you know, it's a great location when it comes to um, Sri Lanka, Goa. You know, it's it's fantastic in that sense. I think India, in comparison to any of the other schools I've been in, um, which is kind of a bit of a cheat answer in a way, I suppose. <laughs> but it's actually been the easiest to adjust to culturally, I have found. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I've been able to connect more with colleagues that are from India um, rather than just sort of hanging around with the expats. Um, I definitely feel like I've kind of connected and formed more friendships um, with colleagues that are from Bangalore. Um, and I, there's something about the work ethic of the students as well. Um, I think it's been one of the most enjoyable teaching experiences I've had in that um, the students are very, very outgoing, very confident, um, and you can really kind of form good relationships with the students as well. I don't know whether that's just a cultural thing. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I think that in that sense... Um, and we've really bonded as a school community over COVID, for sure. Um, you know, we've all acknowledged our challenges. You know, I've been very open with my students about how, as a family, we may have struggled or I have been struggling. And I think they need to hear that. I think that we can't just continue to put on this kind of resilient front when they are really struggling. I think it's important that they understand that as teachers, you know, we're, we're struggling with mental health issues. We're struggling with the, these challenges as well. And I, I think that it's kind of brought the community close to, closer together um, in, that, in that sense, um, which has been a good thing. I, I kind of have a lot of affection for um, the students I've taught over the last couple of years because of that shared experience that we've all gone through, definitely. Mm. Um, taking it, bringing it back to English teaching, um, I've, I've sort of asked this question to a number of teachers or heads of department over the last few weeks and months in terms of like how you give feedback. Um, and I've always kind of um, termed it in a way where what's the school's expectation with feedback or what's the department's expectation with feedback. And generally, I got more or less the same answer every time. So I was just wondering in terms of like your personal like opinion on how the best way to give um formative feedback or summative feedback is have you got any kind of strong feelings about how you think it's what's the best way to go about um, informing students of their strengths and weaknesses 
obviously there are certain expectations from the school um, as to how we give feedback and I and I follow those procedures you know they will be um, you know the majority of, of times it will be that they get written feedback um, sometimes written feedback I follow up with oral feedback if individuals need an additional kind of conversation um, mm. but the thing that I have found most effective over the years when it comes to students actually learning from assessments and feedback and actually being able to take something away and um, use that to improve their own work has actually been peer Mm. assessment. I just find that it's almost as if they have this kind of um, epiphany light bulb moment when they're able to you know look at somebody else's work now I always make it anonymous because I find that you know obviously you don't want students to know whose work it is so I try to fairly regularly have them peer assess anonymously and I find that they are so much more engaged so much more um, open to looking at a piece of work in that sort of with that outside perspective it's very hard when it's your own piece of work because you are you have an emotional connection to it even if mm. it's just some kind of boring essay from their perspective they still wrote that and so in i find often no matter what i say it's a lot harder for them to um see see those areas that they can improve um and i've just over the years found that when if i ever have any kind of sort of anonymous peer assessment task I listen to them giving feedback on a particular written assignment, for example, and some of the ideas they have and some of the things that they come out with um, really show that they are learning so much more from that process than just you giving feedback. You know, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I mainly teach diploma and, you know, unfortunately, they are very focused on grades. You know, a lot of the time they just want to know what the grade is. They, you know, they're thinking about university applications are thinking about predicted grades and so they don't engage with any of the actual feedback as much as I would like them to but yeah peer assessment just seems to be something that me personally I found often actually you know results in a in a better learning experience for them mm, that's, yeah that's a really interesting I, I completely agree with you actually in terms of the, the, the emotional attachment thing, like having, having, having written things myself, either for school or as part of a master's or something like that. And when you get feedback on it, there is a temptation to sort of feel like, well, you, you don't understand what I was trying to do with this or you don't understand. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, I really, that really resonates with me, that one. Um, it, you're also kind of, um, uh, running the, the TOK side of things with regard to the DP core at your school. Um, yeah. This is something which I definitely am guilty of not liaising with TOK in my old school, at least um, as much as I should have done um, as an English and TOK teacher. How, how do you think you can enhance students TOK experience during English lessons? What can English teachers do in order to kind of um, bridge the gap for when they go into the TOK classroom? I think there are so many opportunities um, and probably a lot of English teachers are um, already exploring texts with a TOK perspective without even realising that they are. Um, you know, when we think about language and meaning and we think about 
connotations and we think about um, symbolism and, and cultural symbolism, um, there are, you know, all of those things are a form of communication that is, you know, giving us some kind of knowledge um, and our perspective and our language has a huge um, influence on how we receive that knowledge, how we understand that knowledge. Um, you know, a couple of silly examples, but, um, you know, the, the symbolism of the colour red, for example, you know, it means different things in different cultures. And um, the knowledge and understanding we might gain from analysing literature where the colour red is mentioned, you know, stereotypically in Western cultures, we're thinking about anger and passion and so on. But you'll know this living in Hong Kong and China, the colour red means something completely different there. Um, you know, it's a it's a colour that means good luck, it brings good fortune. And I think mm -hmm. if we don't understand those subtle differences when it comes to language and communication um, and how that connects to our perspective and culture, um, the knowledge that we are gaining is, is very, very different. Um, another one, I love this example because I think it says, you know, as I started my love of, of teaching in, in Italy, um, idiomatic expressions is another great example. So, you know, in uh, English speaking languages, we have this idiom of rekindling an old flame, which means mm. you get back together with your ex. Now to rekindle an old flame sounds like something positive. You know, you're giving it new heat and life and it, it sounds like a really positive thing. Um, the Italians have a, a, an expression that has the same meaning, but their idiom is entirely different. And theirs is to reheat old cabbage. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Yeah. It says so much about the Italians' attitude to, you know, getting back together with your ex. It's like reheating yeah. old cabbage. So I think there's, you know, an enormous amount that we can um, understand from a, a knowledge perspective when we look at language, when we explore language in detail. Um, and then even, um, you know, if, if you are exploring dystopian novels, a common theme of that genre is the restriction of language because we all know that, that language, um, you know, language is knowledge, language is power. And so it's, you know, it's a common theme, whether it be 1984 or The Handmaid's Tale, we know that by restricting language, you are restricting knowledge and understanding. And so just touching mm. on those concepts, I think as well as, you know, I think the opportunity, the possibilities are endless when it comes to TOK and language and meaning and interpretation. Yeah. Mm. Okay, that's quite reassuring to hear, actually. Um, in 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 your experience, then, um, as a head of department, what, what do you think for anyone who um, has never been head of department, or for anyone who is and listens to this, might be able to empathise? What do you think is the most challenging part of holding that role? I think I think it's probably going to be different for different people. I think for me personally, it's is time. Um, obviously, once you have positions of responsibility, you have less time to, I don't know, perhaps really kind of explore something innovative in you in your teaching, because you might have some admin jobs that need doing. Um, sometimes I kind of read something and it really inspires me. And then I kind of feel like, oh, I, I don't know when I'm going to implement that yeah. or when I'm going to have the time to do this. And, you know, so I mean, time, I mean, I think time as a teacher in general, you know, we're often lacking time, but once you take on kind of those responsibilities is, is even less in it of it. So uh, I guess that's one element. Um, and, um, you know, you're, you're, you're managing adults rather than children or adolescents. Um, and sometimes that can be challenging as well, because, um, 
you know, we're used to dealing with young people who have um, issues or they lack understanding with something and we're trying to help them. And we're, we're used to that in our job. And then, you know, kind of, I guess at times applying the same thing with, with adults at times, I kind of feel like, well, you know, you should know this, you're an adult, mm. but we're all still human. And so, yeah, it, you know, managing relationships in that sense occasionally has been a bit of a challenge, but generally I'm, I'm very fortunate in the school I'm in because we all generally our department see eye to eye on pretty much everything. And so, you know, there's, there's nothing too difficult there. Mm. Um, what's the best advice that you've ever come across or, or been given by anyone you've worked with or that you've read um, in terms of teaching? I would say that um, the best advice I ever had, and I think that over the years I've understood it better, um, so when I first started my um, teacher training, I did the, as I said, the graduate teacher program. Um, and I was asked by the school that I was training with initially, um, they had a part-time position available and they asked if I would interview for that position. And if I accepted the job, to, I would be on the graduate teacher program. So I had to teach a lesson um, and be observed, even though I wasn't a qualified teacher, I had to go kind of go through that process. Um, and I remember the then head of department saying to me, just as I walked through the door into this classroom, he just looked at me and he said, be yourself, be authentic. Mm. And I now realize how important that is because from a parent's perspective now as well, because I wasn't a parent back then and now I am, students see through you. They mm. absolutely see through you. You know, the number of times I hear students say things like, you know, that teacher doesn't seem to enjoy what they're doing or they don't enjoy their job or, you know, I think if you're at that stage, maybe you should, maybe you're in the wrong job. Um, but I think that you absolutely have to be yourself. And I, I have witnessed um, sort of in observations and things, some people that seem to take on this kind of teacher role. It, it's almost as if they become somebody that they think a teacher is supposed to be. And when they stand up in front of the students, it's as if they change and become this other person. And it always makes me feel quite awkward and uncomfortable because I think, you know, students can see this. They, they see it. They know it. They, you know, they, they, they can see straight through you and you're going to have a much better relationship and you're going to have a lot, um, you know, your lessons are going to be more engaging and you are going to get a lot more out of these students and their learning experience is going to be far more enjoyable if you are yourself and you are authentic. And that may even be mean that at times you have to, you know, sh show your weak side and put yourself out of your comfort zone, but share that with them. You know, I have had times when I've said to students, right, we're going to do something today that I've never done before. Let's just try it. It might work. It might not. You know, if I've come up with a new idea for something um, or even down to something like I had a conversation with a student the other day who was concerned about, um, whether she, I mean, she's quite old to be tested, but she, she was wondering whether she might be dyslexic or not. Um, and she said, you know, it might just be that I'm not very good at spelling. And I said to her, well, you know, that, and that's okay. Cause do you know what? I'm not great at spelling. <laughs> I'm, I'm head of English, but I make mistakes. <laughs> we all do, you know? And I think that, you know, be human, be authentic, show that you are a human being and that, you know, you're prepared to take risks. You're prepared to be outside your comfort zone. 
you're, you know, you're honest if you're trying something new. They appreciate that. And it, I think it probably encourages them as well, you know, without wanting to be cliche and, um, you know, IB learner profile. If you're seen to be taking risks in front of your students and stepping out of your comfort zone and being authentic and being yourself, they appreciate that. I think you'll end up with a better relationship with your students and um, it will probably encourage them to take risks as well. Mm. I think the performative part is certainly, I think even like as an adult and watching other adults present or something like that, I think I'd be distracted by the performance. I'd be watching the performance and not actually listening to what they were saying. And I think students are exactly the same. I think if you do that thing of no smiles till Christmas and, um, yeah. and, and those other kind of, uh, you know, supposed like receive wisdom, um, like if you if you're a strict person, if you're like an austere person, then fair enough. Like absolutely, yeah, I suppose you can roll with that. But yeah, I, I would. You'd almost be distracted by this kind of like performance that the the person is putting on. I agree with that, um, completely. Um, lastly, Jenny, have you got any resources that you'd recommend for teachers, particularly English teachers, who are seeking to improve either internationally or otherwise? Yeah, I I put a lot of thought into that question because I thought, well, what do I actually do? Um, I suppose other than try and keep things kind of up to date and recent. Um, mm. So making sure that if I am looking at non-literary texts, um, if we're looking at media, making sure that it is as up to date as possible. So that's not necessarily resources, but that I suppose is just making sure that you are staying on top of things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a fan of textbooks. I had a new student the other day starting our diploma course who held up one of the IB textbooks and said, is this the textbook we need? And I said, I don't know, I don't use textbooks. <laughs> I said, you're welcome to use it and you know, might be useful for revision, but I'm not the kind yeah. of teacher that is gonna say turn to page 17. Um, but one thing I would like to share, if, if any of the listeners haven't um, experienced this yet, is um, Harvard's Project Zero. Their website is fantastic. The visible thinking course that they do is superb. Um, and it's not just the visible thinking. If you look at their site, there are so many ideas. Um, and, and what I like about what they do is that they give you concrete ideas of things to do in the classroom. You know, the number of times I've been to PD or looked at resources and it, it's kind of inspirational waffle, but actually mm. nothing concrete that you can say, okay, this is a concrete practical approach that I can use in the classroom. Um, and what I like about what they do is that it, it gives you very concrete practical approaches um, rather than just sort of ideas. It's more than mm. that. Um, so any of the visible thinking um, routines that they have, but they have more than that on their site. That, you know, they have all sorts of things. Um, and then other things like, I quite like question quadrants. Um, I think that's encouraging students to ask questions. Obviously we're, you know, we're an inquiry based school. And so um, I think that you need to, I think you need to scaffold and structure those questions for them because at times if you just say, you know, what do you, what are you thinking about this? Or what is your question about that? It's too vague. They need to sort of be able to sort of understand how to structure different types of questions. Um, mm. So that's quite useful as well. Um, yeah, they're, they're the best two examples I can think of. I haven't, I haven't heard of um, the Project Zero thing, so I'll, have, I'll definitely have a look at that and uh, put a link down in the description. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Thank you. Uh, the, the only thing that remains for me to say basically is uh, thank you very much for giving up your time. I'm sure it's uh, quite a hectic time of the year, given the fact that like schools are about to go back and, and, and um, uh, I'm sure you're making kind of uh, provisions or plans for what to do with the online learning thing. But I hope all that will change as soon as possible and, and you can get back yeah. to the classroom where we, we all belong. Yeah, hopefully mm. I will see as yeah. soon as possible. Yeah. Thanks a lot for uh, your time today, Jenny. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.